Hey, good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. If you're in the lobby, start making your way in to the worship center here. We're going to sing songs of praise this morning, songs about the joy that we have in our risen Savior. Amen? Church, let's sing it together. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory. Good morning. Grateful to be here with you this morning, worshiping. My name is Ray, and I'm one of the uh, counselors here at Fellowship Fayetteville, along with our partner counselor, Lindsey Gibson, and a couple of interns. And I just wanted to take a minute this morning to say thank you for your support. 
since we have launched this care and counseling ministry at Fayetteville, we have felt the support of the elders and we felt your support as we try to take the hand of those uh, struggling in a season of life and try to lead them towards healing. Just to let you know, over the last year, we have averaged 900 sessions a month with three staff counselors, 14 partner counselors over three campuses. And so we are busy and we need your prayer. And what I came to ask you for this morning is to take out your phone and with your camera, follow this QR code to our care and counseling page of the website. And on there, you will find our counselors listed. And every time you think of it, anytime you think of it, I'm asking you to go there and pray for um, those counselors. Uh, We see people from all ages, uh, young people, uh, students, married people, elderly, with all kinds of struggles in their life. But we need your support in that. And so again, thank you. I'm grateful for the opportunity to do this and grateful that you guys support us in it. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ray. Y'all give Ray a round of applause. Man, him and his team do so much. There's a lot of us in this room that meet with them weekly, so thank you guys. Hank, you want to come on up? This is Hank Matthews. He's one of our shepherding elders, and he's going to tell you about an initiative that's going on that's been going on for quite some time now. Quite some time, yeah, Ron. Thank you. Appreciate so much. You may have noticed the tent in the foyer on your way in this morning. That's there as a reminder. It's also a place where you can help us in an initiative that we started over 20 years ago, partnering with New Heights Church and ministering to a segment of the population that probably most of us in this room would never interact with at a congregation known as South Church. Their pastor is John Baker, who is also an attorney, and he's had a heart for that segment of the population for over 30 years and has had a ministry down there. One of the initiatives that we started years ago Because John came to us and said, hey, there are people in my congregation that are homeless. They are not going to go to a shelter. They're just not in a place to do that. And yet they have this great need of shelter, especially during the winter months. Could you help us? And so we started this tent sleeping bag campaign. And over the years, we've provided uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of tents and sleeping bags for that segment of the population that needs it especially as we move into the winter temperatures. So here's how you can help. Did you want to ask me how you can help first? How can we help? Thank you, Ryan. Yes. You see, I could run on there. There's two ways that you can do that. Here would be the very best way. For you to take your family and go and purchase one or two tents, two to four sleeping bags, and they need to be at least 20-degree rated or colder rated sleeping bags because these folks are going to be in them throughout the winter months. And you can bring them over the next three Sundays. I think November the 5th is our last day that you can drop those off by the tent out front. Or, and this may even be better for some of you, donate money. You can send checks. He's not high tech on the Venmo stuff. You can send checks and there's a dress up there. You can take a picture of it. I'll make sure that by next week I'll have that address. If you want to mail a check to John Baker uh, in in, uh, care of South Church, 
the unbelievable impact that had. He told me story after story, which I don't have time to share with you, of lives that started out in a tent, moved into a home, and now have vital ministries in the lives of that particular segment of the population. So if you would, would you pray with me as we move forward? Lord, you have always celebrated generosity of your people. And I'm reminded of one parable in particular where you reminded us that everything we do for others in your name, it's as though we are doing it as unto you. And you said that I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And in that same mindset, Lord, may we provide needed shelter for those that cannot fend for themselves. Father, give us a generous heart. Thank you for this tangible way that we can touch a segment of the population that has no voice, that desperately needs our help. And we pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Hank. Church, if you would, let's stand together. Let's continue to sing songs of praise this morning. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. And all sing how great, how great is our God.
reflect on God's glory, on his greatness, we're reminded about fallen, how broken we are as a community, as a church body. So let's go before the Lord. Let's confess our need for a Savior this morning. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. We have not loved you as you deserve. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not obeyed you as we should. Lord, forgive us our sin. We are in need of a Savior. And in his goodness, in his greatness, in his mercy for us, church, he sent a Savior. So for those of us that believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have hope. So church, believe the good news that Jesus died for us, Jesus rose for us, Jesus intercedes for us. In him, we are a new creation. In him, we have forgiveness of sin. In him, we have a savior. To God be the glory forever and ever, amen. Close and tear. 
that we're going to meditate on this morning. So the, the scripture's there in front of you. Read it to yourself. Pray, meditate on it for a few seconds. Maybe a minute or so, and then I'm going to read it over us. to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Church, this morning we're going to welcome Dr. Steve Graves. He's going to teach us. We did some quick math earlier. I think Steve's been with us for around 35 years or so, and we, um, we really value his wisdom. And so if you would, uh, join me in welcoming uh, Steve Graves this morning. That was that clap because I've survived 35 years. I've been here for a minute, I guess. Um, so have you ever heard the phrase, you don't know what you don't know? You heard that? You know, it's um, actually been around since Socrates. He's been around for a while. Um, he was the one that first coined something like that. The concept is basically that 
I have a realm of knowing and thinking that's like this big, and if you are really smart, yours might be this big, but all of us have another realm of thinking and knowing outside this realm, this orbit, that there's a whole other world out here going on that we're not aware of until we become aware of, right? Um, I've heard this applied to getting married or having children or buying rental property. The last uh, reference I heard was somebody uh, decided to get a new puppy, and, but they already had two kids in diapers still. And so they added a new puppy to that, and the person that was giving them the puppy was excited for them, but they said kind of, you don't know what you don't know. There's a realm of knowing and thinking out here that's kind of bigger than what your realm of thinking and knowing is right here, okay? Well, what does it take for me to go from here to here? Just aging, being around 35 more years? Is that what it takes? Well, maybe, part, partly, but not completely. What it usually takes is some kind of aha experience, some kind of something, either someone shares something with us or we experience something that helps us kind of blow out of that circle and go to an aha experience. You ever read this? An aha experience is actually a real thing. The Oxford Dictionary says it's a moment of, of an epiphany or it's a moment of discovery. It's a moment where my eyes are opened and they just kind of like, oh, I get it now. Let me ask you this. How many aha moments have you had with this device, this cell phone? Do you remember the first time you realized, oh, there's a compass on this thing. Oh, there's a timer on this thing. This thing has a, this thing has a, a, a clock. Uh, this thing has a, um, uh, a countdown. Uh, I can do a battery, low battery mode. I can sort my pictures. I mean, we have all kind of just run-of-the-mill everyday aha moments with something as mundane as our cell phone. A few years ago as an adult, I found out that I, was, that I had type 2 diabetes, and um, it, was, it happened in my adult life. And so I went to the doctor, kind of got things lined up, uh, decided to try to start eating better, and all of a sudden, the first, first kind of right out of the gate, we had a community group. I went to a community group, and I'm going in there conscious, trying to say, you know, my knowledge expanded. I'm trying to be good about it. And so uh, at this particular community group, there were all kind of foods there. And then I saw this big old giant bowl of fruit. And I love fruit. Like, I'm a fruit-loving machine. I love it. So I go over there, and I just pile on the fruit. Just pile it up, pounding the fruit, okay? Go home that night, check my blood sugars, and what do you think I found out? You know, and, and, and my wife says, you realize there's sugar in fruit. I said, are you kidding me? Like, and it's not the same sugar as like Dr. Peppers and Snickers and stuff like that, but it's a lot of sugars. I had an aha experience. You with me? All right. When we turn to Philippians, that's, our, that's a, the, the book we're going through. We're in chapter three today. Go and turn to it. When we turn to Philippians chapter three, Paul gives us his auto-scribed documentary of the biggest aha experience of his adult life. His whole thinking and knowing about religion, about God, about Jesus was right here. And then something happened that blew his brain and he expanded out to a whole nother realm of thinking and knowing. Now, in case we might not remember there's a historical account in Acts chapter 9 and then also in Acts 26 that gives us kind of a snapshot of what happened with Paul. Let me give you just a quick one just so you know. Paul's original name wasn't Paul, it was actually Saul. And Paul's original work wasn't building churches and visiting missionaries. It was actually eradicating churches and hunting down 
people of faith and putting them in prison or even cheering on their death like he had with the hero Stephen earlier. He was a bad dude. He was a bloodthirsty enemy of the early church. All right? And then something happened. Something happened that took him from here to here. He had the most dramatic aha experience of his life. And it's found right here in Acts chapter 9. Let's read it. As Paul was traveling nearing Damascus, he had gotten approval to go to the outer borders, the outer territories, um, which where Damascus was. A light from heaven suddenly flashed around him, falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Swindoll says this was the violent capture of a rebel will. This is what happened. Now, in, in Philippians 3, we have basically him retelling what happened and then the years that he worked this out. Now, this is 25 years, 30 years after the Damascus Road experience. He's sitting down and he's writing a note to the Philippians and he's remembering this scene. So let's jump in. In chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3, we kind of have the, the intro. This is the kind of the setup of the whole thing. Look at the last part of verse 3 um, and look for the word confidence. You see it? Now look, there's three big meaty questions that we're going to go through today. I'm going to give you three meaty questions that are going to kind of capture the unfolding of this aha. All right? Let's read them together. The first meaty question is this. In what have I anchored my confidence to navigate life, work, and matters of eternity? I told you they were meaty. Get another, get another sip of coffee real quick. What have I anchored my confidence to that allows me to navigate all of this thing called life, my work, and anything that has any substance of eternity to it? What is it? Look at the word confidence in, in verse 3. He basically says this. He says, listen, I have reason for confidence. Uh, don't put confidence in the flesh, but I have reason. But if you think you have reason, I even have more. He's basically making the case if any human had reason to be confident and anchor their confidence, which means trust or weight, if they had anything to anchor that in, it was him. And then he goes on in verses 4, 5, and 6, and he lays it out. Let's read his resume. He says, I have more confidence. I was circumcised on the eighth day, the nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews regarding the law. I was a Pharisee regarding zeal. I persecuted the church regarding righteousness. That is the law. I was blameless. What's he doing here? He's highlighting and underscoring all the things that he had confidence in that gave him the ability to think about God, religion, Jesus, anything of matters of morality, everything else. Now, here's the deal. This is simply Paul's resume. But when we read it, we don't really get the, the impact of his resume because it's a little bit dated and we don't naturally grab it. But what's a resume supposed to do? A resume is supposed to help me get into a world that I'm on the outside of. A resume is supposed to impress you enough that you'll take a second look at me if it's a job offer or if I'm trying to join a fraternity or sorority. You'll look at my list of my credentials and my merits and my accomplishments and my education and my, and my ancestry and all that. Embedded in this is actually an impressive resume. We just don't get it in today's world. 
You'll see his ancestry. You'll see his orthodoxy, what he believed. You'll see his activity list, which is we all have. You'll see his list of morality, what he said, I don't do these things, and I do do these things, and I mean, like, that should get me in. But for some reason, when we read this, we don't don't necessarily kind of just sit back and say, wow. Uh, In my businesses, I've been involved in hiring a whole bunch of people this last year. We've hired a number of CEOs and a few CFOs and a few founders and different kinds of people. Um, And I didn't bring any real resumes, but I'm going to give you a couple of sample resumes. Look at these two resumes. If I had a chance to hire Jimmy or Sherry, tell me who I'm going to hire. Jimmy's a high school dropout. He's been in and out of prison. He can't find one person to give him a good reference. He's fired from his last couple of jobs. He has horrible help. And then there's Sherry. She has two degrees from Harvard. She's the granddaughter of Billy Graham. Wow. Giddy up on that. She runs ultra marathons, plural. She just kind of grump through ones like every, every year she's rolling them out. She has 25 incredible personal references. Who has 25 of those? Founded a company, took it public, 17 million followers on Instagram. She gives 50% of her salary to charity. Now, look, we read that and we say, that person's not even real. Okay. I'm telling you, when you read that, that is precisely what Paul looked like in the New Testament. He had credentials that literally every single one of us would say, wow, wow. So here's what we do. Just like Paul, we build our list of accomplishments and merits and credentials, and we build our list of morality and orthodoxy, what we believe and our ancestry and all of this stuff, and we use it to prop us up in how we navigate this thing called life. It allows us to measure up with each other. It allows me to measure up with myself when I look in the mirror. I get to say, you know what? I might not be really good at work, but I'm a heck of a dad. I might not be a really good dad, but I'm a really great husband. I might not be a really great husband, but you know what? I'm a really hard worker. Or I'm the moral conscious of my group. You know, I'm the straight line. I'm the straight arrow of this group I run with. And we all create this long list of accomplishments, our resume of sorts, that allows us to measure up, to prop ourselves up, and we anchor that as we go through life. Now, we're going to peel back the layers with Paul. This was his first kind of outer layer of his aha. The first piece was him unfolding the things he had anchored his life to were inadequate. They didn't carry him. They didn't really work. So he had to have another set. Let's go to our second question. Our second question is, have I discovered the super thing that alters the balance sheet of life and eternity? Have I discovered the super thing that alters the balance sheet of life and eternity? Now, right out of the gate, in verses 7, 8, and 9, Paul pulls us into math class. Now, just a level set here. Who are our math wizards in the room? Come on. Let me see them. There you go. Appreciate you jumping in on that. If you're really good at math, raise your hand. Come on. There you go. Okay. Who's the other opposite? You're kind of a math survivor. Oh, wow. Okay. And then all the rest of us in the middle. Okay, here we are. Okay. What's a balance sheet? A balance sheet is simply a calculation, excuse me, that takes my assets and my my liabilities and it crunches them down to what some kind of real value or worth is. 
In, in, in chapter 3, verses 7, 8, and 9, I want you to look for math or financial terms because Paul is absolutely dragging us into a math class to do a calculation, not about my money, but about my life. Let's read it. Look at verse 7. He comes right out and he says this. Everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss. See the word? Everything that was a plus, a credit, an asset, a gain, I considered, the word means reckoned, it really means counted, it really means calculated. Everything that was a gain, I've recalculated it, and now it's a loss. He had a huge list of gains, but he recalculated them, and now they're a loss. Keep reading. He does another calculation. He says, more than that, I consider, I calculated, I reckoned, everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. So he does another quick calculation. Here's what you want to think about. You want to think there's a big old giant whiteboard up here, and Paul comes up and he writes all of his gains, and then he marks them out and he says, those are not gains, those are really losses. And then he comes back and he says, you know what, actually, all of those gains compared to this surpassing value. The word surpassing value is something that is elevated above every other thing. It's something that sits on the top of nothing else above it. Everything's below it. It literally, one good translation, it's the super thing. It's the super thing that sits above everything else. And then he does one more quick calculation. Keep reading. At the very end, he literally says, I'm calculating three times. He keeps calculating where his gains are, where the assets really are, where the things of value really are, and then all of a sudden, he says, you know what? Every single thing I thought was valuable, it's simply compared to the idea and the reality of knowing Jesus in a real way. And we're going to talk about that in a second. It's nothing but garbage. He reaches into his very smart, very educated brain, and he pulls out the, the, the only word he can think of, which is waste and garbage. And he says, you know what? And on the big whiteboard, he puts garbage over here. And he says, everything is really of no value versus that. Now, let me just stop. We've read this before. We've heard it before. But I'm telling you, Paul was walking down the road to Damascus. And something happened to him that blew his brain. And he changed the way he calculated everything. The way he, the way he considered Stuff he thought was valuable versus stuff he didn't think was as valuable now. And so then he pulls us right out of math class into seminary class, into theology class. We go in and we meet Garland. Garland's in there waiting on us, okay? So we go in and he pulls out in verse 9 the word righteousness. Now, verse 9 is where the whole idea really reaches its center, its core, the kernel kind of concept. You see the word righteousness? The word righteousness is one of the thickest words in the entire Bible. It's used about 500 times, and it literally is a really hard word to translate into one word. One, one word is really hard to translate this because it covers all kinds of legal, judicial standings. It, it covers pragmatic lifestyle. It covers morality and goodness and badness. It just covers a lot of stuff, <clears throat> all embedded in that word righteousness. Um, this is why one... Um, author comes back and says, listen, every time Paul is using it, 
what Paul always means is he always means the way I'm relating to God. That's the, it, it, the word righteousness means how I relate to and, the, and my standing with God. This was the thing that blew Paul's brain. He thought he was relating to God this way, and then something happened with his aha experience, and he realized there's a whole other world out here of how he was supposed to and could relate to God. In his old life, he basically said righteousness looked like one thing. But now in this verse, he basically says there's two kinds of righteousness. There's a righteousness of my own, and then there's a righteousness basically that comes through God. You still with me? He basically said my credentials, my resume, my morality, my life, my activities, my ancestry, my, my merits, all of that stuff is what I thought the way to kind of pull life together and how to relate to God. That's the way I thought it was. But then now I realize it's not. And I have this big aha. And I need the righteousness of God, not my own righteousness. Let me give you an example. It's kind of hard to get our heads around this, so maybe this will help us. Let's suppose a few weeks ago you had what I'm going to call a random Tuesday. Say that with me. That eh, wasn't bad. Random Tuesday. Okay. This particular random Tuesday was bad Tuesday. Say it with me. Bad Tuesday, okay. Um, I woke up. I was really grumpy, cursed all day, self-centered all day. Um, that, that morning, I realized I had a whole bunch of gambling debts from the weekend, so I figured out a way to steal some money from my company without them ever finding out, so I kind of covered all my debts, all right? I went to lunch. I was on my phone going to lunch, and I pulled in. This didn't really happen, so relax for just a second, okay? Um, didn't happen to me. All of them didn't happen to me. Some of them, of them did probably, okay? I pull into lunch. I'm on my phone, and I wheel in, and bam, I hit your car. I jump out, and I drive a pretty heavy car, so I jump out immediately and look. My car's fine. Your car's, like, got a huge problem on the back, okay? I look around. Nobody's there. I jump back in my car, and I go to another place for lunch. I'm out. I get home, you know, I'm still grumpy, still bad, really horrible to be around that night. Um, right before I go to bed, I kind of get on my phone, and I get pulled into some bad things on my phone. Then I go get on my computer, and I get involved in some other bad things on my computer, and I go to bed. That was what? Bad Tuesday. With me? Say it again. Let me ask you. Do I need the righteousness of God on Bad Tuesday? Whose righteousness? Are you kidding me? Is, that, is my righteousness going to work on Bad Tuesday? No way. I'm out. That's Bad Tuesday. But you know what? Not every Tuesday is a Bad Tuesday. Sometimes we have Good Tuesdays. Say it with me. Good Tuesday. All right? Good Tuesday. I wake up. I wake up an hour early. I pray for you. Pray for you by name. Memorize two more verses in Philippians. I go to work. I'm crushing it at work, doing nothing wrong that I can think of. I, I, I literally, I go to lunch. You walk up to me at lunch and you say, hey, 
Steve, I've been watching you for two or three years now, and what, what you have, I need, and I share my faith with you, and you come to Christ, and it's incredible, and I get home, and I share with my wife, and we're celebrating, and we watch two more episodes of Chosen or whatever, you know, I mean, we're just, we're in the zone, man, we're, we're in the lane. You with me? This was what? Say it, Good Tuesday. Really? Now, let me ask you this. Do I need God's righteousness on Good Tuesday? Why? I had a great Tuesday. My righteousness cannot, cannot establish the way I relate to God. This was the aha. This was the kernel that Paul absolutely blew his brain on. This is why Tim Keller basically used to love to say, Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. You see, what I do, what I do with his righteousness is I take on his resume. It's not my resume. My credentials will never add up enough. It's his resume. It's what, and this is why Paul was captured by the concept of grace. You remember when you're reading through the New Testament, you get to all Paul's, he just talks about grace all the time. What is grace? Grace is something I don't deserve. It's a way God relates to me based on who he is and what he's done, not what I do, all that stuff. That's grace. So here we go. First one is Paul, kind of we're unlayering them. Paul's first big aha was my credentials aren't enough. My resume won't hold me. The thing I had confidence in is not it. And then he realizes the super thing. The super thing is being known by Jesus and knowing Jesus getting his resume on top of my life and letting that design and drive the way I relate to God. Make sense? Let's go to the third one. It kind of pulls it all together. The last couple of verses in our section, it's basically the third question. And here it is. What level of knowing Jesus am I pursuing and experiencing? Look at verse 10 and 11. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Paul's goal was to know Jesus. Now that he kind of had his eyes open, he had his aha, he knew what the real value was, he knew where the, where, the, where the super thing was about, was knowing Jesus, being known by him. He said, great, then my new goal is to know Jesus. See it? Now, Knowing is kind of an interesting term. Um, it's, um, um, it can be confused in our world. Knowing, uh, we kind of move it around in our modern world of, of, of digital information and social media. For example, how many of you, well, who is this? Who is this picture right here of? Come on, tell me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so what, what's she doing? She's at the Kansas City Chiefs game. Yeah, she's, so we know, we know who she is. But now I won't ask you to raise your hand. There's a chance. But like, we just know about her. We don't really know her. Knowing about somebody is not the same thing as knowing somebody. In our culture, we think we know people because we have a lot of tidbits of information. I look at LinkedIn every day, all day long for different things to kind of get some more information about you or somebody. Because I know about somebody doesn't mean I know them at all, does it? No. 
Social scientists basically say there's at least different levels of knowing people. We know that's true. This, the kind of the lowest level is what we would call the acquaintance, and the acquaintance is where you recognize my face, I recognize your face. Neither one of us might know each other's names. We might, might not, okay? But we kind of say, oh, yeah, hey, yeah, oh, yeah, say, yeah, saw you at the game, yeah, whatever, okay? Acquaintances. And then there's friendships, and friendships kind of assume we're supposed to know each other's names and maybe a little bit of data about ourselves, right? The deepest level of knowing is more of a companion or a life partner, and that's basically a two-way relationship where I know you and you know me. The interesting thing in our, in our text is it says back at the beginning of verse 8 and 9, it says that Paul said, I found myself to be known by Jesus. And because of that, now I want to know him even more. The word know is the, a very precise word that he picked out. The word know is gnosko. And what it means, it means a knowing that's not just a book knowing. It's not just a random, I recognize your face a little bit, and I kind of know a name or two about you or some data. No, no. It's a deep, experiential, personal knowing. I've been reading a book um, uh, by a guy named David Brooks, and um, I've read everything he's, tried to, he's written in the last 25 or 30 years. Um, he's a writer. I don't agree with, with everything that he says, but he's a really good writer. His latest book actually comes out next week, but I, was reading, I had a chance to read it early. Um, his book is on how to know a person. And in this book, he basically has tons of stuff to say, but one of the things he says is this. If I want to really know a person, not just an acquaintance level or a friendship level, but a real companion a deep two-way relationship level, he brings it down to a couple of things, attention and conversations. What kind of attention am I giving this knowing relationship, and what kind of attention are you giving me back versus all the other things my attention's going to? And then the other is conversations, and he goes into those two. So my deep application would be this. What kind of attention am I giving my relationship with Jesus, the surpassing thing, more valuable than any possible other thing I could be pursuing life? Everything else basically would balance out in my balance sheet as not important, worthless, even the word garbage compared to the value, the super thing. Um, now, look, don't, don't, don't misunderstand Paul. He's not saying my family's not important, friends are not important, my job's not important. He's not saying that. He's saying that if we were somehow going to compare it, the thing that's going to be able to navigate my life all the way through this human life into the next life as it relates to how I relate to God, that's what he's saying. And he peels back these layers with this giant aha that started 25 or 30 years ago, and he literally is still thinking about it, flooding his memories. Make sense? So we got three questions. There's three big questions that we've kind of reviewed together. In what have I anchored my confidence to navigate life, work, and matters of eternity? Take a quick second. Think about that one. Number two, have I discovered the super thing that alters the balance sheet of my entire life? 
And then the last one is real simple. What level of knowing Jesus am I pursuing and experiencing? Let's wrap it up. Here's a quote by a guy named John MacArthur that I think is really pretty, pretty pointed. That day on the Damascus Road, the living Christ broke through the incredible blindness of Saul of Tarsus, who was a Pharisee, who was a legalist, who was a works righteousness worker, and shattered his confidence in all his religious accomplishments. At the root of self-confidence was forever plucked from his heart, and he made himself known to Jesus, and he sold all to gain Jesus. Now, here's the big idea for us. I don't think any of us probably are going to have a Damascus Road level aha experience. I'm not saying none of us have not. They still happen. But as a general rule, most of us are not probably going to have that level of an aha, like, you know, blinded, couldn't speak, went off in the desert for three years and just still trying to figure out what happened. That was what happened to Paul. But you know what? God's still trying to engineer my life for an aha experience as it relates to him. If, if, if my thinking today stands right here on how I think about God or how I know Jesus, God's trying to push it out and move it. And he might use my health. He might use my children. He might use my work. He might use my neighbors. He might use all kinds of things. But he's still after me. Listen to these last two quotes. St. Augustine says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And then the most famous quote by Blaise Pascal, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any created thing, and there's no resume we can create that will take care of that void only by God, the creator, who's made known through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are um, so thankful that somebody as smart and somebody as driven as the Apostle Paul would have to come to himself to realize he still needs something outside his own accomplishments, his own credentials, his own merits. Thank you for being our resume in Jesus. Thank you for bringing righteousness as an available option to our life. That we don't have to simply live good Tuesdays over and over and over to make life work. That your righteousness can become our righteousness. We're grateful. In Christ's name. Man, church, we get the chance to, re- to stand together and to respond in worship this morning.
Father, we sing those words, we declare them this morning. Father, help us to believe them more. That when we search outside of you and your goodness and your grace for us, we come up empty-handed. We try to cling to things that don't last, that are wavering. Father, you and you alone can satisfy us. Help us believe that more this morning. Let that be good news to our ears. Help it change the way we walk out of this building this morning. We love you. It's in your son's name. Church, as always, you've got the prayer room available through the doors on your right. There's communion available through the doors on your left, right up the stairs there. Have a great week of worship, church. We'll see you next week.